This episode of the Digiday Podcast is sponsored by Kiwi. Facebook's newsfeed changes continue to hurt publishers. If you're one of them, do not panic. Get to know Kiwi. Publishers like the New York Times, Condé Nast, National Geographic, and BBC all use Kiwi to distribute content profitably on Facebook. Find out how at kiwi.co. That's K-E-Y-W-E-E dot co. Kiwi, making stories relevant and powerful. Hello and welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. This week, I'm joined by Jim Vandehey, the co-founder and CEO of Axios. Jim was my guest a year ago when Axios had just launched. So we talked about you know the approach that Axios was taking. So I thought it would be a good time to come back and check in and see what worked and what did not. And then, in this highly charged time for politics, we talked about Trump's relationship with the media, Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury book, and much more. Hope you enjoy it. Jim, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, good to be here. We're going to do something new later on in which I'm going to play back some of the things you, you claimed or asserted the previous time, and then we're going to revisit them, see if they're still true. Yeah, probably all were spot on. <laughs> okay, but it's it's been over a year now. Axios launched uh, January 2017. Give me the top line. You've got $30 million in funding now. What are we talking about? Visitors? Email, subscribers, revenue? We'll talk, sure, revenue? we'll talk about it all. Okay, so let's go, let's go through. So how many visitors are you guys getting a month? So we look at it a couple ways. And, and your monthly uniques were about somewhere between 8 and 9 million uniques. Okay. We have, I think, 300, 350,000 newsletter subscribers. The average newsletter subscriber gets roughly three different newsletters. Uh, so the reason I point that out is we think a lot about who are your, what is your hyper engaged audience? How many people are coming to you each and every day because they need and want your product and will come probably under any circumstance. And so we look at, yes, you look at monthly uniques, but we really look at that couple hundred thousand that are coming each and every day. Who are they? And then how do you grow that band of people? And they all tend to be like smart professionals, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of C-suite, a lot of people in politics, a lot of people in technology. And our game is to try to get as many of those as humanly possible, as fast as possible, and inform them on the topics that we think matter most. So what, what's the open rate? Our open rate on newsletters is still about 50% across all of our okay. newsletters. I think we have 11 newsletters now. And again, we, we really put the onus on you to say you want the newsletter. So a lot of people, one of the reasons that open rates are so low for so many companies is they do way too much mass marketing of it. So what we try to say is, listen, you have to come to us. You have to opt in. You have to want this. And if you do that, you're going to end up with a much cleaner list and people who open it each and every day. So and then again, that, that again is a great sign of engagement. And, I, and we're going to probably come back to engagement a lot because mm -hmm. I think what has value in the media and what's going to have even more and more value is do people need and want your product and know that they're getting it from you and that they value it from you. I think one of the big mistakes that so many media companies have made is they've been chasing mirages. They've yeah. been chasing scale or chasing Facebook or chasing video. They've not actually been chasing an audience that needs and wants their product. Okay, so I want to get to that because we are coming out of this flimsy media era. Um, and we had spoken a lot about this uh, a year ago. Um, what about revenue? It's the lifeblood of many businesses. It is. I mean, it's been reported. I mean, Wall Street Journal reported that we're at about $12 million in revenue 
last year. They haven't run a correction, so we're going to safely yeah. assume that's pretty correct. And our goal is to try to double that uh, this year. I think that's what a healthy new startup company should do is be able to double their revenue in the early years. And we're confident we'll be able to pull that off. And again, it's a great measure. Uh, like you, your, your company, you basically fund most of your growth on profit. That means you're running it like a responsible business. We look at media as a business. It's not a hobby. And so everything that we do, we have to see a very clear link to revenue in the short term. Not a hope and a prayer, not chasing a mirage, but know that whatever we build can drive revenue almost instantaneously. If you do that, you're building both a healthy brand and a healthy business, and you have to have that pair. And you're about 100 people. Yeah, just over 100 people. Okay, so definitely not profitable on on that. No, nor should we be. Right. Okay, so how much money do you end up having to take to build a business of the kind of scale you're looking at? To be honest, I don't know that we would have had to take much money at all because what we didn't know before we went out and raised money is that revenue came in almost instantly. And I think part of it was we had reputations in the market for producing products that people needed, particularly influencers. So we probably didn't need to raise that much, but we think we're onto something and you want to move as quickly as possible to be able to own that space. So we did an initial round of 10 million. In our second round, we raised 20 million, but the bulk of that was sort of an insurance policy. When we went out to raise, we looked and we said, listen, there's, there's risk out there beyond media. Then the risk is potential war with North Korea, economic calamity, how risk averse are we? Let's raise more than we need so we know that we have more than enough cushion to get to where we need to be as a media company. So I don't anticipate having to raise money uh, in the short term. We certainly don't have to based on our revenue flow and our cash flow and our cash burn. Uh, mm-hmm. The only time we would go out and raise more is if we think we're on to something even bigger and that it requires a lot of capital either to do acquisitions or to do a lot of technology fast. So right now, 100% advertising based? I mean, some yeah. events, but... It's a, almost every advertiser. We probably have 50, 60 advertisers, but every advertiser does a mix of ads in the newsletters, ads on mobile, and events. Very rarely is someone just doing a straight mobile buy or straight newsletter buy. Most advertisers who are trying to influence how sort of elite opinion uh, leaders are thinking about topics try to do a blend of those. And we encourage that. And, and you put off the subscriptions. Well, we're beta testing a couple things. Our hope is by the end of the year that we'll have a plan in place for how do we do high-end subscriptions. Our theory of the case hasn't changed. Our theory of the case is you build a brand you build an audience, you build loyalty. Once you have those two things, you build a subscription model on top of it. Our bias is towards a high-end subscription business model, uh, sort of like we did with Politico, with Politico Pro, which is high dollar, high need for professionals. So no $99 a year. I don't think so, but again, like if you just look at the world, how it's changed in the last year, I'm done saying we won't do this or we will do this. Like the world has changed. Who would have thought that? People like me like to hold hold that against people, but that's actually just being smart. But you listen, you had, it's, I hate cliche words, but like you have to be almost hyper agile. I can't stress how hard media is as a business. I try to tell, I told people when they're investing in us, like, listen, this is hard. We've got everything working for us and it's still hard because you have to, unlike other businesses, get editorial, business, design, technology, all working in synchronicity in a hyper-competitive market to break through. And mm-hmm. if you can do that, you can build a nice, beautiful business. And to us, the way you build that business is to have a combination of ads and subscriptions. I don't think we would do a consumer 
uh, paywall. I don't. I still don't see a big enough upside. I think we would lose more in ad revenue than we would gain from the subscription side. But who knows? Go back a year ago. Who would have thought that the world would change its view on video, on Facebook, on scale? That Donald Trump would still be like ninety-five percent of traffic for most sites. Like things are just too many unknowables. What I do know is that you know it always comes back to that core. Am I building something that you, the reader, needs and enjoys and has to have? Like that is, whether it's media or clothing or whatever industry you're in, like that is the differentiator between a great company and a fine company. Right. So what hasn't worked as well? A lot has worked well. I mean, I, I tweeted the other the other month that, that I can't, and, I, and it's not just because you're here, uh, I can't remember like a new media brand that's that's made such an impact in in a, a year's worth of time. You had a great first year, I think. Um, what didn't work as well as you thought it would? It's hard not to sound cocky when I answer this, but nothing nothing went wrong. Like, and again, it's because we had screwed so much up in the past. Get a member. By the time we start this company, we had done Politico for ten years. We had hired five hundred people. We had scaled into a different country. We, we knew what it takes to build a culture. We knew that you need design and technology working in synchronicity with editorial. We knew how to find sales uh, leaders that, that think like we do. So most of the things that we thought would happen happened. I would, I would say it happened faster than we thought. I think we had more impact across more sectors more quickly. Are there things we would do differently? Yeah, I wish I had better data today uh, than I do. I wish we had built that into the system early on. We have fine data. I don't know that we have exceptional uh, data. And data is... Data, what, is it, what does that mean? Just I want to know that I have metrics that I can trust about engagement, about mm-hmm. who's coming to our site with precision, and what are they doing. Is that what you're getting at? I mean, just a little tangent on this, because, I mean, you said you have to make sure as a media brand that you mean something to people and that you know they are deeply engaged. But a lot of the metrics that people end up going back to are simple metrics um, around reach. Because, they're stupid metrics. Right. They're stupid metrics, but they're readily available metrics. But they're readily available stupid metrics. <laughs> I, I just I try to be very clinical about this. I don't care the unique visitors or scale. or Why doesn't anyone ever ask the question of your unique visitors? How many came once and had no clue that they were on your site because they came through Facebook? That's a big percentage for many companies. So when I think of metrics, I want to know with precision who's coming, why are they coming, what are they doing, and how do I get them to stay longer? How do I better serve them? If we can figure those things out, you end up, I think, with a company that has real value. And metrics will get better. Advertisers will get smarter. So one big question I have is, I mean, you started in January 2017. And in preparing for this, I was wondering, is Axios made for the moment or is the moment made for Axios? You know what I mean? Like because you started when Donald Whoa, Trump dude, deep. when um, Donald Trump uh, yep. became president, and he is to me everything about this administration, the, um, the chaos, the constant you know who's up, who's down is sort of made for this extremely high metabolism approach that that Axios has. Listen, I think the model that we have in terms of trying to make things uh, much smarter in a much more efficient way would work in any environment. And it would have worked whether or not Hillary Clinton won or Donald Trump won. Is Donald Trump good for Axios? He's probably good for media. He, there's no doubt he drives a lot more traffic, but he definitely drives interest. I've never seen so many people this passionate about politics regardless 
of their political views. It's just, it's captivated people in a way that I never thought politics would. It dominates every conversation, not just in politics, but in technology, in media, in business, uh, in culture. And you don't see a wear out effect of that. In my own head or in the consumer, (laughs) I see, I see, uh, no, I see no evidence whatsoever that interest is waning. People are captivated uh, by him for better or worse. We obviously have the added advantage that we have Mike Allen and Jonathan Swan. And a lot of people pay attention to Mikey, who is a genius, but Jonathan Swan is a bionic reporter who is he, if you, if you just said, go into a laboratory, build a reporter who can own this moment and own journalism today covering the White House, you'd build Jonathan Swan. Right. And it's because he has an appreciation for history and politics and he can work sources and he can move quickly and he has an impeccable news judgment. And so we've been able to break more news than most new companies typically would on one of the most important beats in the world. So it, yes, like that's that's had a big uh, uptick for us. But I think that would have worked either way because we're seeing similar penetration in media or technology or business where we're able it, to... It would have worked, but I wonder like if Hillary Clinton was president or if it was just a more yep. normal presidency, if the people who thought Donald Trump would become a captive to the normalities of the White House... Would it? Ha- I mean, it just—it's—it's it's a remarkable moment, I guess. It seems to me. It is, but then our, you remember you remember our editorial theory. Our editor, this is not a political publication. About 20, 25% of our content is political. Our theory is, is that over the next five to 10 years, that if you're a smart professional, you need to get a hell of a lot smarter, a hell of a lot quicker on media, meaning how do you consume and disseminate information, technology, business, science, mm-hmm. and politics. And it's usually the collision of those topics that are going to create conflict, new businesses, new ideas. That's the editorial proposition. That would have been the same if it was Hillary Clinton. And in some ways, I think people would have started to think more broadly about more topics. Listen, what's about to hit us with robotics and AI, what Elon Musk said at South by Southwest, that this is something the country, the world is just not gotten its head around, that there's going to be changes to jobs and to industries that make what happened to the manufacturing crisis in our country seem like small ball. Massive things are about to shift. So if Hillary Clinton were president, we'd be spending more time thinking about that. I think we'd be spending even more time thinking about this broad societal rethinking about our relationship with these technology platforms. Mm-hmm. Listen, until a year ago, we all loved them. We were goo-goo. They were the greatest, the hippest companies. And now you have you have whistleblowers from in, from inside these companies saying that, listen, we created these addictive products. You have people comparing them to tobacco. You have people saying you can manipulate elections, that they're destroying the media. That's a huge story. If Donald Trump weren't president and Hillary was, that might be the biggest story uh, that's unfolding. Yeah. So I think I, I don't... Well, sometimes it's sort of overshadowed by the, you know, who's up and who's down within the Correct. cabinet. Oh, you know, and you guys have a lot of this stuff. Lot. It's like, yeah. uh, you know, Trump's mad at someone. I mean, yes. he's usually mad at someone, right? He's often mad at people, yeah. <laughs> and so each day it provides the... And the, that's time taken away from thinking about any of these issues, I think. It is. I mean, if you said, what didn't you get right in the first year? Like, I don't... I'm always looking for ways that we can punch through on those other topics to grab people by the collar and say, listen, look at what's happening with China. Look at the mm-hmm. vacuum that they're filling and the consequences that that could have. Look what's happening in energy, where it might seem like a boring industry, but suddenly you have the United States as a major exporter of oil, and you suddenly have big energy companies even starting to talk 
uh, in a more liberal ways about climate change and the president of the United States. There's these big things that are taking place, and, uh, and we're, mm-hmm. we're continuing to look for ways to do that. We do it with our site. We do it with the different newsletters. We do it with our events. But Donald Trump is a loud, loud megaphone. Quick break for a word from our sponsor. You may have seen the BuzzFeed ad that Facebook is breaking up with the news. If only it were that simple. Publishers are understandably more cautious about using Facebook to distribute content, but the truth is Facebook is still critical for most publishers. The question for publishers now is how to use Facebook profitably. That's where Kiwi comes in. Kiwi helps hundreds of publishers do just that. Whether you're looking to drive more traffic, increase video views, drive subscriptions, or sell products, Kiwi can help find and target the audiences that matter the most at the best price. Visit kiwi.co to learn more. That's K-E-Y-W-E-E.co. Kiwi, making stories relevant and powerful. Thank you for the support, Kiwi. So with these grappling with these very big issues, explain to me why smart brevity is the better approach. That's with a TM. Like, why is that a better approach to wrestling with these things? Because a lot of times... You know, I think it's 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 amazing. It's good to like you know like get up to date very quickly. But for very complicated issues, I'm not sure whether 250 words at a time is going to do it. Obviously, I disagree with you, and here's why: there's so much information coming at us from so many different directions. I still believe that most stories that are written shouldn't be written or should be about 10% their size, meaning they don't really include anything new. And they don't have a new quote, a new data point, or they have one and they dress it up with 800 words of filler. That if you think about this period, and this is where this might be a controversial view, like if you think about this period, this should be information nirvana for all of us, yet it's basically information paralysis. To get to nirvana, and this is what we talk about internally at Axios all the time, to get to nirvana, you have to take a big chunk of that information consumption and make it a lot more efficient. Meaning what is the one new thing and why does it matter? What are the new data points? How do I go deeper? And if you look at the architecture of our site, it's not, it's not just says it's 250 words and go home. We almost always point you to the smartest piece to click on so you can go deeper. Or we say hit this tab and it takes you deeper within our site. Once you take that part of your information consumption and you make it a lot more efficient, and you're starting to get smarter and get a taste of topics across multiple areas, only then do you free your mind to have time to read that book or read that magazine article or read that mm-hmm. white paper to go as deep as you feel like you have to go. Our part of the solution is smart brevity, is to get us there. And I, I would say that the response from our audience suggests um, we're more right than wrong. That the number of people who write us and say thank you for saving me time, thank you for introducing me to topics and explaining why they matter in a really efficient way. Literally hundreds of emails. I don't know if I said this last time, when I was at Politico, we did amazing things and I thought we built an amazing company. I don't know if anyone ever thanked us, said, Mm -hmm. hey, I love what you built, thank you for doing it. We get hundreds of emails from our readers saying thank you. And 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 I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about why is that? And it's because I think we're solving a problem for them, which is they feel inundated. They don't know what to trust. We're, we're basically liberating them from that, and we're helping them understand from people who have expertise in the field, well, why does this matter? And when you do that, you get a positive response from the reader. So on the other side of this, why does this work for advertisers? Advertisers usually like, they love this, they love engagement. 
they don't want to be efficient. They want right. to engage people and they want to immerse them in, in that sort of thing. H has that been hard to apply that model then to advertising? No, it's been uh, for reasons that to me are like self-evident and obvious The advertisers, I think like the first 18 advertisers we had, they all re-upped a hundred percent. Why? Because they're looking at the data. If you look at the architecture, the cleanliness of our mobile stream, the cleanliness of our newsletters, the way that we help advertisers communicate much more succinctly, they're seeing massive uh, lifts in their message, li uh, massive lifts in their brand, sometimes four, five, six X, what they would get with other publishers. Well, why is that? Because we just taught you, if you want one thing to say or two things to say, just say it and say it over and over that when the mind is cluttered, simplicity is what, what punches through. And so we're teaching simplicity uh, and, and succinctness to both our writers, but also to advertisers. And so the advertising model, it's one of the reasons that we put off uh, even thinking about the subscription side was because advertising was going even better than we thought. And we see a much higher upside for it than we initially anticipated. So when you were on here in February, we talked about um, a lot of things going on in the broader media world. Um, and since then, a lot there's been a lot of destruction, I think. that's uh, There have been layoffs, smashables, flamed out little things closed. What is your big takeaway from this? I mean, outside of what we discussed before, uh, um, that, you know, you need to actually mean something to, to people. I think there's a couple of takeaways that, again, to us were pretty obvious back then. One is don't ever, ever tether your business to the benevolence of another company. The number of companies that tied themselves to Facebook Facebook's job is to drive value for Facebook. It is not, it is not its job to save publishers. It is not to drive revenue for niche publications. And so anybody who built a business predicated on another company's kindness, I think that was foolish to begin with. I think the other takeaway is that video, there's, a, there's a basically, and sometimes I, I feel like our industry, we're such sheep. We all just sort of run together to the same thing. Let's go for scale. Let's go for video. Let's go for Facebook. I described it as a children's soccer game. But it is. But Ball no, goes to one why side didn't of anyone the field. Like, video's hard, and you have massive companies doing tons of video. So if you do video and you can get an audience, ask yourself the question, can you make money off of it? If you keep telling yourself, I can't today, but I'm certain we'll figure out how to do tomorrow, you probably don't have yourself a company. You've got yourself a prayer, and prayers are nice. They're great in church. I don't know that they're <laughs> awesome for building a sustainable business. And so I think there's a lot more uh, disruption to come. And I actually think there should be a lot more disruption. There's still a lot out there that to me doesn't make a tremendous amount of business sense. And at the same time, you see big getting bigger or big getting more powerful. If you look at your New York Times, your Washington Post, uh, your big uh, cable networks, your big sort of media companies, they're all getting bigger. They're all getting stronger they're going to continue to force consolidation or they're going to eat up whatever money uh, Google and Facebook leave for the rest of us to fight over. You're in Washington. You're plugged in there. Any chance of Facebook being regulated in a substantial way in this country? In the short term, no. In the long term, yes. In that, listen, moods in, in society that then get reflected in policy, they take a long time. But the arc is not a great arc for Facebook or for the social platforms because you have several things conspiring against them right now. You've got a huge segment of liberals who blame 
Facebook, Twitter, and others for the election of Donald Trump. Probably in order, they would say, uh, like Facebook right after Hillary Clinton in terms of who they blame for Donald Trump. Before the Russians? Probably before the Russians. There's a lot of anger uh, out there. You've got the media, which, by the way, the media, so many media companies feel like they were used and abused for a decade. And I think you see that sometimes in the coverage. I think there's there's a big incentive for a lot of companies to be even more aggressive in their coverage of Facebook. And then third, all lawmakers do is respond to their voters or to incentives. And they see the winds changing. So you saw it first with liberals where they started to rethink uh, whether or not we should be regulating the big platforms. And now you're seeing it with conservatives who naturally distrust these companies because they feel like they're uh, run by liberals and that Mm -hmm. they're dominated by liberals, even though conservatives are much better at utilizing them often in an election uh, context. So those three things, yeah, if I were Facebook, if I were Google, I'd be thinking a lot and not assuming that just because they won't regulate today, they won't regulate tomorrow because they don't, what Facebook and Google have, it's not a PR problem. They have a real problem. These platforms can be manipulated at a relatively low cost. They, they can cause addiction, right? They don't, mm-hmm. I don't think these companies set out to do this, but they can do this. These are real problems, and there's going to be real examples that pop up probably weekly or monthly, and now they're going to be viewed through a different lens. And when that happens, you have yourself a political problem. Okay, so I want to do rewind to your last time here. Let's get it on. <laughs> okay. So about a year ago, you had said uh, this, and I think this actually, um, this stands up, but let's hear. The gig's up. They didn't make more money off of it because guess what? Everyone else did it. And yeah. the laws of supply and demand kicked in. And you're yeah. throwing it through these third parties that are giving you a penny or an ad, and that doesn't really add up unless you get more and more page views so then you go here let's do more let's do more let's do more next thing you know you have something that i think is of no value uh to the consumer and therefore long term is not that valuable as a brand yeah it's exactly what happened and it's not like i'm a prophet i think a lot of people saw this happening but a lot of people wanted to believe it wouldn't be true and then on top of that because facebook had other problems they've now changed the algorithm which has exacerbated that problem but again, too many people are pointing the finger at Facebook. I point the finger at publishers. You own a business. Make a business that somebody actually wants to pay you for, either in subscriptions or for advertising. If you require these other companies to be a crutch, like that's welfare. That's not a company. Build a company. And so I, I, don't, I don't I have very little sympathy for them. Okay, let's go on to the next one. There are lots of big organizations, big companies, big individuals, uh, think tanks, whatever, that need information that's actionable and need information in a much more smart and synthesized way. If you can deliver that, you can do high-end subscriptions, which I'm a huge believer in. I'm not talking small-dollar subscriptions. I'm talking big-dollar subscriptions. Not $5 a month. So I say 10000 Roy Schwartz, our uh, president, uh, who's our revenue guru, says 10000 100000 But it's something big that's designed for big companies that need smarter information to make better decisions and like that is the place that we're that we're, we find very attractive because if once you can master that component of the business mm-hmm. as long as you have a good culture and you're satisfying your customer you keep them forever my question on this is around everyone has pivoted not everyone a lot of people have pivoted to subscriptions since then do you, are you a pessimist when it comes to the, 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 um, 
this race to reader revenue for consumer-focused publications? It depends for who. I mean, okay, the New York the, Times and the beyond Washington the New York Post. Times, beyond the, beyond the New York right. Times and Washington Post. Uh, yes, I'm pessimistic in the short term. I, I, I would say I'm, I've always been pessimistic short term and long term. I'm now pessimistic short term and potentially changing my view long term. And that I do think because of what's happened over the last two years, people are valuing truth and they're valuing publishers that they could rely on, that they have a relationship with. So I think there's a higher percentage chance that they will pay more than they do today for content a couple of years from now. There's still so much content that's being pumped out for free that I don't think there'll be a big change in the short term. For us on the high-end subscriptions, what I said then holds true now. I've felt it for five years. At the appropriate time, we'll build a high-end subscription model because I think it's a great business. I think it's a great way to leverage your media brand. Remember, the advertising side of a media company is tough. There's a lot of people competing to run those ads for companies, and we might have the best ad unit around. We might have a great brand that people uh, like the reputation of. It's still hard. So if you can, if you can diversify your revenue sources and you can leverage your brand, potentially leverage your technology, that's a really, really nice business. Not every company can do that. Some can, like the information has done it uh, quite well. Uh, obviously, like Bloomberg's done it quite well for a long time. The Wall Street Journal in different pockets does it uh, pretty well. I, I think we can because of the nature of our readership. It doesn't work like you wouldn't do if you, I know you had the founders of the skim on recently, they're not going to do a high end subscription because they have a very specific focus on a very specific audience. And if your listeners haven't listened to that podcast, they should, particularly if they want to build a media company, because they both speak beautifully about one thing that came up over and over and over. They know exactly what their audience is. Mm -hmm. They don't get spooked by what an investor says. They don't get swayed by a mirage. They know exactly who they're trying to reach, and they know that if they can deepen that relationship with that specific set of, of consumers, that they'll have a really valuable asset. And they're right. So a couple final Washington questions before, before I let you go. I want to I be brief here to stay on brand. Where does Trump Russia go next? For, for the lay people who are sort of Trump Russia curious but not you know, in it day to day. I mean, full disclosure, I go, uh, I'm on sort of both ends of the spectrum in terms of there's days where I feel like uh, Robert Mueller and his investigators are not going to find enough of the goods to convince a Republican Congress to impeach him and then remove him from office. And that's, that's an important thing to remember, that the only thing that's certain about how you remove a president is if you can impeach him in the House, and right now it's run by Republicans, and then remove him with a supermajority in the Senate, which now is run by Republicans, and even after the next election, either will be run by Republicans or run by enough Republicans to stop the removal from office. So, in, and Robert Mueller knows this, and what he's thinking about is, if, if he goes after the president on, say, obstruction of justice or something that happened after the election, I think he sees what we see, that Republicans in Congress probably would protect Donald Trump under that scenario, that the, that the one pathway to removing the president through impeachment and through that removal process would be real crimes that are very provable that happened during the election, meaning the interactions between Trump, his campaign, and the Russians. There's a lot of signs on the other side of the spectrum recently where I'm like, geez, there's just so many 
things that don't pass the smell test about different interactions between this White House, between Jared Kushner, between this president, between the president's son and the Russians over an extended period of time when the entire world was watching for evidence of uh, potential corruption. And if that's what we know publicly and what we know that Robert Mueller, while they're not leaking, they keep in all these indictments turning up stuff that none of us knew or none of us thought he was looking at, it means he has a lot more than we know about what he has. And so I still think we're many, many months away from resolving this. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it ends with bad news for a lot of people around Donald Trump. And the question is, does he come out with a case that is so rock solid that you could take a Republican Party? And remember, this is a Republican Party that with the exception of members who are either retiring or in John McCain's case, uh, facing like terminal cancer, none of them speak critically of him in public. And so the idea that they're going to run in mass to remove a president of their own party, even if they don't like him, and most of them don't like him. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, it's going to have to be one hell of a rock solid uh, case. And so mm -hmm. I, I've never seen anything like this. Before I started, before we started Politico and before we started Axios, I covered the presidency. That's what I did for the Post and the Journal. We'll learn more about Donald Trump's presidency in terms of his conversations, his interactions this week than I would have learned in four years as a reporter at the Washington Post covering George W. Bush. Because everybody, as you noted at the top, everybody leaks. Everybody tells their story. He yeah. doesn't care if you leak as long as you don't upstage him. Because to him, so much of this is the show. It is the Trump show. Treat each day like an episode. I will say, and this is sort of a, just a move even beyond the question about Russia, we are in, in, in a period where people should pay even closer attention because a lot of the checks on the president, meaning the staff around him, have left. Like really serious people. Like You might love Gary Cohn. You might uh, hate Dina Powell. You might love her. Uh, you might like uh, you might Rob Porter, who ended up uh, with his own uh, scandal. Like they were all sort of working together to try to keep him from his worst impulses day to day. They're all gone. They're all gone. There's only maybe Mattis is left. Right. And so now you have Trump, not just being Trump, but nobody standing up to him and say, don't do that. So all the things that he said he wanted to do but didn't do in the first year, he now likely will do. And so we are in uh, as wild as the first year was. I think this next year could be even more wild mm -hmm. and more uncertain. And we have a government that is vastly understaffed, both in the White House and at the agency level. I would argue it's, it's potentially ill-equipped to deal, certainly with catastrophe, but even uh, a sort of a massive, uh, unexpected event. And like it happens. Like That's what history tells us. Like nothing, we're, we're living in relative peace and prosperity. Something bad will happen. I don't mean to be a downer. Something bad will happen. The question is, do you have the right people in the right seats to respond to it in the right way? I, final thing, former Digiday podcast guest, Michael Wolf. Yep. You read his book? I, I read most of it. What's your sort of 200-word review? Uh, 200 words is a tough one. So I know way too much about the book and about him. Um, listen, the arc of the book was accurate. Yeah, a lot of the conversations that he put on the record that were off the record sound really familiar to conversations I had with a lot of those same people off the record, so I know them uh, to be true. Uh, were there things in there that were inaccurate? Yes. Were there things that were sloppy for reasons I'll never understand? Uh, absolutely. Uh, but it was a book, I do think, that captured Trump at least 
in a broad brush better than anything has captured it uh, to date. I, I wish, and Michael Wolf come to us for advice, I would have said, listen, take another month or two and tighten it up. Get rid of the uh, the stuff that's not accurate. Double check stuff. Uh, and he used techniques I just, as a reporter, wouldn't use. If you tell me something's off the record, it, it really is uh, off the record. And so that's between him and his God. Jim, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you for having and me. And I'm going to make you come back in a year and do All this right. yearly report yeah, card forever in perpetuity. I'm in. All right. Thanks. And thank you all for listening. This podcast is produced by Aditi Sangal. If you liked our show, and I hope you did, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now we're on Spotify. Also, a reminder about Digiday Plus, that is our membership product in which you get a magazine, which we do quarterly, invites to member events, access to our Slack community, and exclusive research from the Digiday research team. We just wrapped up the ninth edition of our quarterly magazine. It focuses on life after Facebook for the media business. To find out more, visit digiday.com and you'll find the Digiday Plus tab on the menu bar. Digiday Plus is only $395 a year, but if you want a 25% discount, and I hope you do, enter code PODCAST at checkout. That's podcasts. Thanks again. See you next week.